0: Welcome to Raiders of the Lost Podcast, the ultimate film and TV podcast. We are your hosts, James and Anthony. In this episode, let's talk about Tar, the Banshees of Inisharan, and Decision to Leave. Hello, movie friends. Welcome back to the show. Independent cinema is hitting theaters real hard. It's Oscar season. It's booming, baby! booming! (laughs) And we're getting a lot of great artistic films coming out this month, and especially in November and December. This is my favorite time of the year as a filmgoer because we're just going to get an onslaught of great independent films and, you know, Oscar bait movies. But most of them are actually excellent, and these three in particular... Tar, Banshee's Evan and Sharon, and Decision to Leave are three of my favorites so far this year. They were all high on my list of expectations. I also had films earlier this year that were high on my list, like Amsterdam. I had huge expectations for and high hopes for, and I ended up not liking that movie very much at all. So things don't always work out with like how you hype it up, but these three films... I walked in knowing very little about any of them except for Banshees. I didn't watch the trailers for Tar. I didn't watch the trailers for Decision to Leave. So I was able to go into those films completely without having any idea what to expect. I saw Banshees trailers in the theaters, but seeing Tar and Decision to Leave without having any idea of what the story was, what scenes or camera work or the acting was like... Was really an incredible experience because the films blew me away. Yeah, these were three of my top ten on the year. Three filmmakers that it's kind of a no brainer to go see in the theaters, especially with Park Chan Wook and Decision to Leave, and Martin mcdonough and Bans- the Banshees of Anna sharon Tar Todd Field's hadn't made a movie in a while, but obviously Kate Blanchett is probably the best actor alive. Can Act- we just say All Hail Queen? Oh Kate- my goodness! Spider- a performance. So all three of these movies so original, so well written, so well directed. Uh, I've, we both have seen all three of these movies in the last two weeks, and it's been a great month of watching movies in addition obviously big blockbusters, but we've had such great art, and they had limited releases at first, but now they're starting to get widespread release. They're all pretty successful generally, so Decision to Leave is the highest at an $18 million box office. The Banshees of Anna Sharon is around $6 million global box office, and Tar is around $3 million. This is when we record this on November 3rd, so it's all probably gone up a little bit since then, so... Now is the time to support independent film, these small budget movies that, you know, we need art like this in in Hollywood, in movie theaters for people to go see and all three of these movies were exceptional and I mean, we have great performances from Kate Blanchett, might be the performance of the year in Tar as Lydia Tar. What an exceptional powerhouse role for this character of this character Lydia Tar by Kate Blanchett. I was just blown away. And then, not to mention the Banshees of Inna Sharon. we have Martin McDonough reuniting with uh, Brendan Gleason as well as Colin Farrell. The, the they're In, in British crew. They're great. Fucking chemistry. Fucking great. <laughs> the word fuck is used 180 times in that movie. It's very funny. Then, decision to leave Park Chan Wook. He hasn't made a movie since The Handmaiden in 2016. And one of the most important filmmakers in the world, one of the best to ever come out of South Korea. You know, people go to South Korean cinema and movies because of Park Chan-wook's films. No, because of Old Boy, because of Thirst. People discover South Korean cinema. And I think now the world's kind of having a microscope over there in terms of their film and their art, because especially with him and Bong Joon-ho's recent success at the Oscars with Parasite. So now the world's getting their... It's so hot right now. So So hot. (laughs) K-dramas are so hot right now. (laughs) Yeah, all three of these movies, they're really important. And... Probably three of the best movies of the year. If all three of these aren't nominated for Best Picture and Best Screenplay as well as several award nominations for Actors and Actresses, Production Design, Cinematography, I will not be tuning into the Oscars. I'm not going to lie. But these are uh, three amazing filmmakers and three amazing films. And I do think that Cate Blanchett gave the performance of the year. And in her career, it's the best one I've seen she's done all of her life. And that's really saying something for someone who already has two Oscars. It's absurd. Uh, she is such a command of her craft and is really compelling and such a gravitas, powerhouse, kind of a magnum opus performance for her. And I was just absolutely blown away. If I'm going to... Since I've seen Tar, I saw Tar first out of these three. And I saw it like two weeks ago. And still to this... Like right now, I'm thinking like... Of the year, I think Tar is the best film. Top Gun Maverick obviously is my favorite. I think every, I think the whole... The whole fan base knows that. Tom probably knows it. Yeah. yeah. Tom knows it by now. But <laughs> if I was going to say what's the best movie this year, I would say Tar really is. I think it's probably top five for me, too. I got to like spend time redoing my list because so many great movies came out the first half of the year. And now we're getting this onslaught of great artistic film that's a little different than what we were getting with the Northwell. Well, Northmans are very artistic, but I mean the Batman and Top Gun movies that came out earlier. Every, everything really, is very artistic. Yeah, everything every all at once. But, you know, now we have these other Oscar contenders. And it's it, this is going to be a great year for retooling your top ten list, top five lists. And if you haven't seen these movies, um, and if they're not near you in any theaters, they are expanding week by week. Uh, for example, Tar, I think, had the smallest limited release so far but they are expanding and so if it's not play if these movies aren't playing near you right now uh, keep an eye out next week and the week after and the ex- the releases will go to wider to more theaters, so uh, just keep an ear to the ground and keep checking show times to see if these the- films are playing in theaters near you, yeah. And I mean, they'll be on streaming eventually, probably yeah. before the Oscars come up, probably before the end of the year. You'll be able to see all these on streaming, I'm sure. I, I wouldn't be surprised. Now, but see about- them in a theater, though, yeah, absolutely. All incredible experiences. How about we move into Tar first, written and directed by Todd Fields, set in the international world of Western classical music? The film centers on Lydia Tar, widely considered one of the greatest living composer conductors. And first ever female music director of a major German orchestra starring Kate Blanchett, Nomi Merlant, and Nina Haas. IMDb, this is at an 8.2 right now. Ron Tomatoes, 93% critic score, 72% audience score, box office of 2.8 million as of November 3rd. When we're recording this, again, performance of the year from Kate Blanchett. Such a powerful, moving performance. from I, I, We've seen her in so many great movies and. I was blown away by the skill involved and the clear, intense preparation she put into this role. And the way they opened this movie up was so shocking and bold with that 20-minute interview of Lydia Tarr, the character. way to make a film. It, like, was, oh, it was so bold, and I, I, a lot of respect to Todd Field's doing it that way, and it was just an interesting— I'm sorry, it's Todd Field. Oh, I'm sorry, Todd Field. Todd Field to open the movie that way, which I think we— May think of what could turn audiences away because that might, that's why I might have that 72% audience score. But that scene, to open it with a 20 minute interview, it felt it made it feel like Lydia Tarr was a, a real person. I thought she was a real and person. And not just Cape Blanchett playing a character. It really hammered home the idea like, I'm watching an actual human being on screen. And then after that, we go to normal fictional narrative that we're used to. But that opening really set the stage for us accepting this person. That we're seeing before us, not just as a movie character alone. And even more bold, Todd Field opened this movie up with the credits crawl that you'd normally see at the end of a film at the beginning of the movie with some background noise of what sounds like an audition between Lydia and a, a singer. singer from a different country. and In it, reverse. It is a really yeah. bold thing to so do. So the, sh- the credits were in reverse. To show all the people that went into the film that most people don't stick around to watch at the end of a movie. He put it at the beginning of the film, before I think even the title credit, the, the titles came up or anything like that. It was a really interesting thing to do, and I I respect Todd Field a lot for it because it's kind of like you could say a metaphor for the character of Lydia Tarr, where you know someone goes through all these people to achieve all the success, but Todd Field's like putting. The cast and crew, the crew of the film, the production, the the interns even, the PAs, yeah. the grips, the cinematographers, the editors, all the people, the makeup, hair. He's putting them first before pre- the presentation of the film. I thought it was really commendable by him to show the respect of everyone who makes a movie. Because if, when a movie ends and credits start rolling, most people leave when the movie ends. But then, like real movie fans, they'll stick around and listen, watch the main credits, the top of the line credits but then once those are done we get to the scroll the crawl if it's not a marvel movie no one's going <laughs> no and no one's going to wait around to watch all those credits so people rarely wait until the end of credits to actually watched it all and taken the number of people like the sheer scale and size of these films and large film large films especially with heavy CGI it's like the normal number of people that work on those movies is absolutely mind-boggling and insane so it's it's great that Todd Field was like I want to show these people who helped make the movie happen just as much as I did before anything else you see on screen and it was just really remarkable and I found the character of Lydia Tart to be the most fascinating character I've seen on screen, and in a few years, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine because she asked me, Why don't we ever really see female characters who are just like bad people and like do bad things? Mm-hmm. Or, um, she because we were having this conversation, and she's like, I, I keep seeing movies, and w- women are always portrayed as um, the victim of something or. The husband or, or girlfriend of someone. Or if they're a villain, it's because they're being controlled exactly. by like a, a male character. A Black Widow. They've been driven to yeah. that by a male character. And she was like, I want to see, she was telling me she wants to see, she's desperate to see like nuanced characters because people make, everyone makes bad decisions, everyone does makes mistakes. And Lydia Tarr makes very bad mistakes and she makes very bad decisions and she's not a good person in a lot of ways. She is a villain to other people in their lives. She is like a villainous person to them and I think this is a movie where and I I was talking to her and I was like I think that maybe a lot of studios and writers are afraid of backlash for portraying a woman in a negative light without already being a victim which is kind of like backwards thinking because it doesn't respect the person like a, a woman to have their own agency to I can I can only do a bad thing if I'm a victim or if I've been affected by a man in a certain way. Then, then I can do something bad. And so I think this is a movie that's really refreshing. And I think she'll really like this film because it shows a complex character with a nuanced take and someone who is very flawed, like we all are in all sorts of ways. And I think that we're kind of missing that in a lot of studio pictures nowadays. I completely agree. And Lydia Tarr... Best character of the year, of the year, hands down, and she is this wildly famous and successful composer conductor, and she's an EGOT winner, Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, Tony Award winner, highly prestigious honor, and now she's got her dream job where she's conducting uh, the, the Berlin Orchestra in Germany. This is what she's wanted her entire and adapting life. her favorite score exactly. Yeah. And this film is about her basically reaching the peak of her career. We're at in the opening of this movie. And then the fall and the tumble of a combination of, you know, quote unquote, cancel culture and the effects of her self-sabotage and self-destruction of being a bad person and taking advantage of people. You know, she we find out she's been exploiting her power and control over people to get the kind of orchestra she wants, to get the kind of specific woman in positions of power and her is in her orchestras and working underneath her. So using she, favoritism. Using favoritism to exploit them for intimate relationships and take advantage of them and then basically throwing them away like scraps. And in the film, there's a former composer, composing student of hers that commits suicide and she tries to distance herself from the situation, but she eventually comes out that she had an intimate relationship with them and she did this act of favoritism for bringing them up into this orchestra, classical, musical world you taking advantage of the woman and leading her to suicide where she destroyed her reputation, destroyed her career, told every orchestra and musician that she knew not to hire that that musician to try to, to sabotage her, basically. And this is coming back to bite her because she commits suicide. Now, Lydia's dealing with the canceling, basically, of that with coming up with litigation as potential charges as well as – now, her former assistant, who she didn't promote, Francesca, Francesca played r- remarkably well by uh, Nomi Merlan, who's so from, great in this From m- Portrait of a Lady on Fire. She doesn't give her the promotion that she was expecting, and there's clearly an intimate relationship there that Francesca wanted to continue and was hoping that all this work she's been doing for Lydia would lead to this promotion that she was hoping for. She gets turned down turns on Lydia and uses the same email threads and evidence against Lydia to take her down, basically, with this canceling. And it's just basically about the destruction of Lydia T- Tarr's career and reputation. And not to mention, she makes these choices while she is married to Sharon. She is raising a daughter with Sharon. And time after time, who knows how long how many women she's had intimate affairs with, how many times she's taken advantage of young women in the past. One can only tell... Just from this film, within a, a year and a half span of what this movie's talking about, just there's two women already. And Francesca, it might kind of fly under the radar, but there are a couple of moments that show that they were intimate once. And Francesca is basically her personal assistant, trying to work her way up to become an assistant composer and eventually uh, a, an assistant conductor. I'm sorry, and then essentially eventually a, a full time conductor with a major orchestra. But you can see there's a couple of instances where Francesca and her show subtle hints of their intimate relations, like in the car when they're just going over phone calls and emails, and then um, Francesca rubs Lydia's hand. That's a very intimate thing to do. You wouldn't do that with your boss. You wouldn't (laughs) wouldn't (laughs) rub their hand. And then also there's a scene where Lydia's trying to come up with a a new interpretation of a a piece in the hotel room, and Francesca asks, "Do, do you want me to stay can I get you anything else? And then Lydia says, no, I'm good. But you can tell Francesca is kind of like seeing if like, she'll let me stay here for the night. There's instances like that. They're very subtle. And also the way that Lydia um, is kind of courting Olga, the new celloist that she hired. First of all, she only hired Olga because she saw her in the bathroom, was instantly attracted to her. And then during the blind auditions for the new celloist, she saw she recognized Olga's same boots from underneath the boards. Which hide the, the musicians who are de- auditioning. And that's why she hired her for the orchestra. Because she initially crossed out that name. And then she had to erase it with her pencil. Once she saw. Oh that's that girl. I can see her boots. I want her in my orchestra. Because I'm going to basically. Try to begin an, in, in like a courtship with her. Use my power. Use my respect. To like overwhelm this girl. With like prestige. And, and favors. And favoritism. And then she eventually even like changes the. The direction of the of the performance to make a pairing piece she chooses a certain celloist solo a certain cello soloist uh composition to use as the parent the companion piece for the the original composition which she uses because she knows olga is really brilliant at playing that it was kind of like one of the, the best things she's ever done in performance that she saw online so she's c- catering her entire direction of the entire performance to this girl, Olga, who she doesn't even know, but she's very attracted to and wants to have an intimate relationship with. I love characters that have deep obsessions. You know, I think that's one of my favorite themes from filmmakers like Damien Chazelle. He's focused on characters that have obsession. Lydia Tarr has an intense obsession with becoming not only the greatest conductor and composer in the world, but also basically becoming Mahler, her favorite composer of all time and she's even trying to replicate his portrait for his albums with her portrait for her albums trying to get the same lighting the same outfits and she's the the film constantly references Mahler because she's looked up to him and he's a hero of hers and also this film deals a lot with identity where we find out towards the end of the film during her canceling when she's trying to hide out that Lydia Tara has basically created this version of herself that she wants to present to the world. She's changed her voice. She's changed her appearance. She's tr- clearly trying to hide the fact and destroy the fact of her roots. And she goes to her childhood home, which sounds like in the middle of nowhere in a a random city. It sounds like, what is it, Philadelphia or something. Her brother seems like a stranger to her. He's got this city accent that clearly she probably had as her kid, and we're going through her trophy room and everything, and she's crying at the VHS of Mahler. I I think it was Mahler during one of his conducting courses or performances, as well as, you know, we realized that she's not really this incredibly – she didn't grow up as this incredibly high-sounding, articulate person. She created that for herself. And this film is basically about that identity and and how people do create their identities and also how people's identities affect what they want to learn and be inspired by. And there's a really important scene in this film early on, great long take, where she's guest teaching at Juilliard and she gets into an argument with a student who is a person of color And she asks that person about Bach and how does Bach make them feel. And they tell Lydia that they don't like Bach. They don't want to listen to Bach or be inspired by Bach because he was a cis white male. And since that person doesn't identify as the same thing, plus questionable morals, we have this great conversation of, you know, can you separate the art from the artist as well as having accountability for people in the past and art? And should we... Dis- dismiss any art form that was any art that was created by somebody with a questionable past that did questionable things didn't have unsavory beliefs or morals compared to today's standard versus 200 years ago should we just eliminate them from artistic history or can we learn from them can we still be inspired by them despite the fact you don't agree with the way they live their lives at the time and so I think it's a really important conversation to have where there's got to be some sort of balance between Art and artists separating them from the two as well as having accountability for the past. Yeah, I think it's a topic that a lot of writers and especially filmmakers are afraid to broach or even have a conversation about. It seems like people are one, one-sided either way, but I don't think anything is one-sided either way. And I think that everything is complex and difficult but has, needs to be talked about. And I really think this movie is commendable for approaching this hot-button topic – with like a lot of care and trying to articulate what the issue is and questioning it it's not it's not a problem to ask questions and you know asking a question is just like i think that's normal for people to learn more understanding and get closer to each other and finding middle ground and this movie i think is trying to find a middle ground where the young student is saying i don't want to listen to anyone or take inspiration by from anyone who doesn't look like me and then Lydia is arguing that just because someone is different from you in the past, should we judge them so harshly? And if they made bad choices in the past, should we just denounce them and erase them from history? Is that is that fair? And also, if you're going to look through at these people who aren't even here anymore, if you're going to look at them with a the microscope, then you better be ready to have a microscope looked on you in that same regard. And if you're going to judge... These people, you have to be prepared to be judged by other people based upon the same conditions that you're using against them. So do you want to be only judged based upon what you look like and what you, what your identity is? Or do you want to be judged based upon your work and um, what you create as an artist in this situation? And so I think it's a complex situation and conversation that I think the movie is – does a terrific job of talking this out and trying to figure things out because Lydia doesn't want that for herself yeah. because she doesn't want to just be known as a female conductor a female composer a female EGOT winner she doesn't want to have the term maestra instead of maestro that's she thinks that's silly to only attribute like a gender to somebody if they are not of a male identifying gender and they win an award or they have a prestigious job or something like that. And so she doesn't, it's that great opening interview where they talk about that. And she's like, why do we attribute something like female to uh, a prestigious Why can't you just call me a composer? Exactly. Why can't I just be a composer, a conductor, an Oscar winner, a Tony winner? I have to be a female Tony winner. I have to be the first female composer. I have to be this. And then they, the great conversation starter about how, it seems like there's sort of this for forgetfulness of female contribution in the past to the arts for the last several decades. Of course, the majority of civilization women have not been able to contribute to art and to the, to the world. They were, you know, stuck below the ceiling. Of course, we all know that. But, you know, the 70s, 80s, 90s, we got so many great artists and female artists and composers and even female directors. It's a movie podcast and it seems like a lot of people don't really take the time to look up these female directors that were making movies in the twentieth century compared to, you know, the the new uh pop culture hot button item directors like these new young directors that they, they love and know and it's like, yeah, yeah, they're great, but what about the female directors that Claire were Claire Denis, Agnes Varda, I mean, you Catherine Biglow yeah, in the eighties so and nineties before so she won great, an Oscar, Tony yeah, so Marshall artists, and yeah. so a lot of people don't under, don't even know these names because they, they don't really take the time to look to the past. And Lydia Tarr is even asked by the interviewer like, oh, so but, but wait, who are some other female composers besides you? And she's like, oh, well, I mean, there's so many. She starts naming so many. And the guy on stage who's supposed to probably be an expert on classical music probably has never even heard these names before because he hasn't taken the time to go back and look at it. Yeah, I think that the film – because there's so many conversations in this film, so many themes. And that's a great conversation they have because she's like, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for – all of these women who paved the way for me and i think that um what's that what's that term for like just like recency bias yes i think there's a recency bias in all forms of art where we're kind of just like obviously celebrating women who are contributing right now but in a lot of ways not even thinking about oh who were the women who contributed in the past and obviously way more men contributed than women and it was so difficult for women to even contribute to the arts in every regard but that doesn't mean that we have to not even look into the past and try and find those great artists who did make beautiful films and music or art or writing because they're there but I feel like I mean I think this is movie is hitting the hitting it right in the head where it's like we're not a lot of people don't even want to look into the past for that even though it's there which is kind of sad It's kinda like a pop culture thing or so it might be a social media thing related to it too. I mean, we all love Greta Gerwig, Reed Morano. But you know these directors from the past that no one really talks about today in like pop culture. Well, it's like more like in social media, movie culture, YouTube culture, yeah. TikTok, Twitter, movie culture. They're never brought up, which is a sad, sad thing because we've been watching their movies for years, and they probably many people have probably seen their movies and don't realize that they were directed by a movie. Like, a woman like, or Jane, like that. Jane Campion, she just won the Oscar, but she's been making movies since the early '90s. Exactly. And she, I mean, she's an amazing director. And, you know, could you, you could argue that some of the cancelling of Lydia Tarr is unfair in this movie where obviously we have like the doctored video that's been chopped up and edited in specific ways to make it seem more of an attack by her on the student than it really was. And so we have that situation where... When we get stuff put online, we don't know the full truth, and we don't, a lot of people don't understand that things can be edited to sound even more unsavory than when they came out originally from the person because you weren't there in person. As well as Lydia Tarr, you know, the control, the obsessiveness of her control around her life, around her orchestra, around who she lets into the orchestra. controlling situations like when she lets go of the the elder man who's been working as, as the assistant conductor or composer for years and he's clearly going to be next in line and he gets po- stepped over by her she basically fires him to have him move somewhere else and she ends up turning the conversation where he's ended, ends up apologizing to her by the end of the And then the the end of the meeting which is absurd. And plus the control she has over her wife and her family, you know, she steals her wife's pills and then she suddenly finds I found this in a drawer. Yeah, she's taking advantage of her wife. She's not respecting her wife. The infidelity she tries to have a relationship with olga but that doesn't work out for her and also you can there there are things about her that you kind of like when she intimidates her daughter's bully but still that's not the proper behavior of an adult to yeah. thing to do he's very so, funny though so she's a very complex yeah. and very flawed character but i can't help it i gotta see this movie again because she's so fascinating it also has a great conversation in contrast to that to that uh, how you judge people from the past of maybe it's not a good idea to put these historical figures on such a, like a godlike pedestal because Lydia becomes one of these people, a person with so much prestige and an in- incredible body of artistic work. But she, what's her impact on the world outside of that? She's a terrible human being to everyone around her, everyone who loves her, and she treats those in her orbit horribly. So is she? She should she be put on a pedestal in fifty years? In a hundred years, should she be like? Oh, one of the greatest people to ever live. The way she views, like, Mahler and Beethoven and Mozart. I think that's another conversation the film's having. It's, it's so complex and nuanced how it's not just taking one side. It's taking the, the complex subject matter and showing us both cases. Where she's like, you can't denounce people from the past because they're great artists. You can't just denounce their work because they would made bad choices. But then she herself, great artist making terrible choices, and how should she be judged? Should she be completely celebrated in 100 years, or should she be, like, shown kind of condemned in a way because of what of her reprehensible behavior? It's a tragic ending for her, where she's basically exiled out of her countries and the, the places that she loves and where she works in Berlin, and she's moved to Asia, we're assuming it was Thailand, and she's now composing music for these... Live events for fandom and like sort of anime dress up culture, and it's it's, it's cosplay. But man. she's like still obsessed with conducting, and she's still in her element, and she still treats it like she was in Berlin conducting conducting the orchestra there. Yeah, it's it's a what an ending and what a, what a story arc. And it ends on the crowd. Yeah, it ends on the crowd. Um, essentially, I mean, you could say that's like both the audience for celebration and also for judgment. The crowd, Mm -hmm. looking at it both ways. You can judge the artist, and you can also celebrate the artist. It's a really deep film. It's really intelligent. Such a well-written script. Great Mm -hmm. performances. This has got to get so many nominations. And if you haven't seen it, I'm I'm assuming if you've listened this far, you have seen it. It's it's (laughs) tremendous. It's a tremendous movie. (laughs) Now let's move on to the next film of the episode. The Banshees of Inisherin, written and directed by Martin McDonough. Two lifelong friends find themselves at an impasse when one abruptly ends their relationship. With alarming consequences for the both of them. On IMDb, this is an 8.2. 97% Rotten Tomatoes audit- critic score. 83% audience score. Box office of 5.8 million as of November 3rd. This movie... Is gorgeously shot. It takes place in 1923 on an island off the coast of Ireland. It is a very small town, which, you know, motivates the characters in their actions and personalities. It is hilarious. So well made, so well acted by Colin Farrell, Brendan Gleason, as well as the character of uh, Paddock's sister, Carrie Siobhan Condon. Carrie Condon as Siobhan, and then Par- and Barry Keoghan as. It's Dominic Keegan. So I know there's a lot of debate on how to pronounce Barry Keegan's last name. And we got a lot of flack, like especially on TikTok, about how we said Barry Keegan because it's an Irish name. A lot of Irish names are pronounced differently than what they look like. They have odd spellings for Americans. Yeah, like Siobhan in this film. It's spelled S-I-O-B-H-A-N. Podic is – there's a B in there that's silent. Column is COLM. We've never seen these letters put together yeah, like this Yeah, yeah. So I mean, we're American, even yeah. though we're a quarter Irish, we don't we're not great with pronunciations. We're getting there. We're doing our best, <laughs> but and we we're told by a lot of people that it's pronounced Keowin or Keown or Keon. However, I watched an interview with Barry Keegan this morning to correct the pronunciation and he pronounces it with a G in there. He's on hard records. G. He's on record saying it's the soft G, the the key again. Soft G is J. Okay, so the hard G, the key again. (laughs) I thought J. All right, that's the soft. So he pronounces it with key again. He even says, I may have been pronouncing it wrong my entire life, but the G is in there. So that's how Barry Keegan says his name. Even though the rest of Ireland might say Keegan or Keon it's Keegan. It's It's official, folks. It's official. We found the interview. The evidence. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, the the cast is amazing in this film. Mark McDonough is a terrific writer and director. He's also done Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, Seven Psychopaths, in Bruges. Fucking Bruges. He's an excellent filmmaker, and he gets great performances out of his cast, and especially Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson, who are an amazing pair with their dynamic and their chemistry. And in this film... I mean, I think Colin Farrell really steals the show. He's a wonderful performer, balancing both drama, tragedy, and terrific comedy. Uh, he plays this hack- happy-go-lucky farmer. He he has a couple of animals. He sells milk. Most that's how he makes his ends meet, and he lives with his sister Siobhan. And he has a best friend Colum, who he has been hanging out with for who you could imagine. Their entire lives. Yeah, decades now. They've lived in those houses their entire lives. And what they do every day, 2 p.m., goes grabs Column and they walk to the pub and they have a couple of pints at the pub and then they go home. That's their routine. It's been like that for years. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, Column just goes to him and says, I don't want to be friends with you anymore. Don't speak to me ever again. Um, This is friendship is over, basically. And then Paddock can't believe it and the film takes the course of him trying to deal with that Trying to figure out why this is happening, whereas Column is going, he's doubling down on what he's on his stance, and he gets to the point where he threatens Product that he'll cut off his own fingers every time Product comes to talk to him, and that's where the story takes off. It's just a brilliant concept. It's a great balance between a couple motivations of the motivation that Column has for ending the friendship versus Product's motivation to keep the friendship alive. And I think the small town setting The small island setting Really informs the characters so well It shows their motivations clearly And their personalities in life And you know, it, it it has an effect on different people. You know, Siobhan is somebody who feels unfulfilled in life. She's lonely. She even asked Podic one day, like, don't you feel lonely? He's like, what the fuck is wrong what with is everybody? <laughs> <been to> everybody? <laughs> she wants to get out of there. And she, we find out she's making secret plans to leave the island to move to the mainland and takes a job there eventually and, and leaves Patek. And then columns is at this point where he's seen his life waste away and he's like, I got 12 years left and I have nothing to show for it. He's a, he's an artist. He's a, he plays the fiddle really well. And he's, he's got a creative mind. Obviously when Podic goes inside of his house to call on him, he's got all these interesting masks and sculptures that he's created, but it seems like he's just been trapped on this Island and he can't escape. And he's been trying to do some of his life. And now he's looking back and he sees that he's wasted his entire life with these pointless, meaningless conversations about with Pottock because paddock You know, they've been lifelong friends and they just go to the pub. There's nothing else to do besides go to the pub for a couple of pints at 2 p.m. And he's wasted his entire life with Pottock. And he's kind of taking it out on Pottock rather than looking at himself in the mirror. And this wildly unfair thing that he does in terms of basically hitting the block button on Pottock in real life, which is really unfair to Pottock because, you know, call him. Tells him, like, I I don't want to hurt your feelings. I don't want anything bad to happen to you. He still, like, cares about him. Like, he even helps him up when he gets punched out by the cop and helps him ride his horse his pony home so he gets home safely uh, when they're not talking. But he just doesn't want to talk to Paddock anymore. He doesn't want to waste any more time on these pointless conversations about his pony shite. They're good conversations. Just normal conversations. Normal conversations. (laughs) They're shite conversations. So (laughs) it's really unfair because he's he's making Paddock like a scapegoat for what he hasn't achieved in life. Yeah, I mean he. I think that he's blaming someone else rather than himself, and he's turning into this self-destructive human being because it's his own fault. If he found Colin, if he found Podic to be so boring and so wasteful of his time, then why did he spend so much time with him? And also, I think that Colin is blinded by his obsession with legacy, where he wants to be remembered for making great music, and he wants to be. Yeah, he wants to say he says he wants to have an impact on the world in some way and he wants people to remember him for what he's done rather than who he is and then um he says like and he tells productdock like nobody remembers people from history they're not remembered for how nice they were they're they're remembered for what they created or what uh their legacy was whereas productdock is saying he's arguing that it's more important to you know. Form relationships and to live a good life, and people, it doesn't matter if you're not a famous artist or a composer. A hundred years from now, what's more important is the impact you had on the people in, in your life and the relationships you gathered. And people will remember you for that. Like Product says, I'll I'll remember my sister forever. I remember my parents. They were they were kind, nice people. And that's actually more important than Mozart's music to someone like him. And that's ultimately what really matters in life. And that's why Paddock is, out of everyone, the only character who seems to be happy with his life and seems to be comfortable and content. He doesn't, I think that he doesn't want more. He's that He has enough. And just having a couple of animals and a, a roof over his head and, and a best friend he can talk to and his sister who he lives with, that's enough for him. But the other characters in the, in the film, they're unsatisfied. And uh, I think that Product is probably the most commendable for that reason. And the whole plot of this film, we all know if you've seen the trailer, you know, he th- Colm threatens to cut off a finger if Product starts to talk to him. And the whole first hour of this movie, you're wondering, is he going to do it? And after he gives him the ultimatum, like, is he really going to cut off a finger? And then he finally does. He uses his chairs. He cuts off a finger. He throws it at Podic and Siobhan's door to their shock and then you know it it seems like column like you said is self-sabotaging and why would you cut off one of your fiddle hands if you're trying to be this great composer and write music and you're you're just limiting yourself and you're handicapping yourself to be able to play the fiddle maybe he wants a little pain in his life to be able to be inspired to play the fiddle a little better or, or to feel real pain to be able to write a great song maybe that's his his logic here but he has to know that Potter would still talk to him. He's known him his entire life. He knows that co- that Potter can't shut the hell up. He knows he's gonna fucking. Come talk to him. What the feck are you doing? And then he threatens him again. He's like, you talk to me again. I'm going to cut off all the other four of my fingers. And he does after Park comes talks to him because Potter can't help himself. He, he has this new strategy. What if I'm like a tough guy? Yeah, what, if, what if I berate him? Because Dominic tells him like, yeah, call him. said it's the most interesting you've ever been when you went off on him while you were drunk. He's <laughs> like, maybe I'll like him again. And then Potter like, is like, yeah, like he has this new mentality, the new me where I'm going to be bold. I'm not going to be such a nice guy anymore. And then Colin cuts off all the rest of his fingers off of his fiddle hand, which is—unfortunately, he finishes his his tune right before, but still, it's pretty ironic. It's a shite tune. I wouldn't bother with it anyways. (laughs) (laughs) It's so ironic to do that to yourself because I think he's clearly just unhappy with the decisions in his life and he's taking it out on Potter. He wants someone to blame. It wouldn't make sense why he would do that if he want like you're you're preventing yourself from ever composing music and if that was so important to you then why why is cutting off your fingers even being spoken about and he's clearly disturbed in a lot of ways and paddock even says i have 10 fingers to prove how how my mental my mental state how many do you have i have nine (laughs) and the priest is always like how's the despair he's like it's back it's back (laughs) (laughs) and i think that the film is just so complex with the character work and that's what really makes the movie work in a lot of ways combine this with really terrific comedy uh, sharp woody humor i was cracking up the whole time and i saw it with a great audience i think that fans of martin mcdonough They know his sense of humor, and they know his style. It's not for everyone. This movie's not going to make a bunch of money. Even though I went opening day, the theater was only half full. But still, everyone I saw it with, they were getting every joke, and we were all laughing together at all the right moments because all the jokes did land. And there were moments of this film where I was, like, cackling right after tearing up. And that's also a testament to Colin Farrell's performance of balancing the the tragedy and the comedy of his character because he's, like, this happy-go-lucky, like, the idiot, the dull, the, the dim. Yeah. He's the always dim. been dull. And it seems like when the movie opens, like, nothing can get him down. And he's got everything he needs. And, and it opens with this great shot. The first shot of him is... He's just smiling, walking through town with a rainbow behind him. It's just, it's amazing. That's all you need to know. Like, I just, I started laughing at that shot. I was like, this is perfect. But then he ends up actually tragically losing everything that matters to him. He loses his best friend, he loses his donkey, he loses his sister. And then by the end of the film, I think he's very much a changed man. It gets to the point where he purposely tries to kill Colm by burning his house down with him inside, knowing that. If he 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 warns Colum. He's like, "I'm gonna burn your house down tomorrow at 2 p.m. If you're in it, you're gonna you're gonna burn up with it. If you're not in it, whatever, whatever. It, it doesn't matter. I'm burning the house down regardless." And he burns the house down, sets it aflame, and sees Colum inside. Doesn't even bother to say, "Hey, do you really want to do this? Do you really want to die inside of her? He just walks away with with Colum's dog. So that's something that the first that's the, something that early Paddock in this film would never conceive of doing. But he was pushed past his limit by this incredibly unfair situation where Colm, I think this film is showcasing that you cannot dictate how other people feel. and You cannot dictate how other people live their lives. If you want to stop a relationship and a friendship, so be it. But you cannot say, you cannot be surprised if someone reacts poorly to that. You can't just expect them to act like, oh, there's no problem. My best friend of 30 years doesn't want anything to do with me. That's okay. You have to... Like you have to be able to respect other people's opinions and their feelings in every matter and there's a lot of complexity to how the donkey dies you know i think it's great blatant metaphor that mcdonough did with the the animals obviously Vodick is the dim person on the island, the second most dim person after Dominic. After Don- <laughs> he's a yeah, duller. Yeah, but who's like the next dim. Everyone thinks he's dull, and he's got a donkey for a best friend. He's the donkey. He's of one the of island. the nice. You're one of the yeah. nice ones. He's the donkey, whereas Column has this dog. People love dogs. All the ladies, they love Column. They always have. Everyone <laughs> likes Column. He's intelligent. He's outgoing. He's fun, and so I think that's a great metaphor. But the complexity for how the donkey dies, it's really, really intense because, like we said. He, the donkey chokes on eating Colm's fat sausage fiddle fingers, <laughs> which is tragic. It's so sad. And then when Potdock finds the donkey is choked on the fingers, you can only imagine what's going on in his head because not only did the fingers kill the donkey, but the reason why the fingers were cut off is because Paddock couldn't stop talking to Colm. And Colm gave this unfair ultimatum to him to stop talking to him. So he probably blames himself as well as blaming Colm at the same time for his donkey's death. And his donkey was the only thing he had left because his sister left and he was alone. And this is it. Then now his donkey's gone, who he treated like, basically like a dog, like his best friend besides Colm. And so it's actually a really complex way the donkey dies and how probably Podic Kong uh, processes it and then decides to take this this uh, qualm to their graves. And they have this great final moment on the beach and ultimately, they're, the film's suggesting that this is not going to be over and it's never going to be over. And ultimately, I think it's saying, like, you can't control someone else and you can't dictate how they live their lives. They have their own agency and their own independence and their own choices. And Colum can't control Paddock, and he can't tell Paddock what he can and cannot do. And I think Paddock, he's unwilling to let go Of one of the most important aspects of his life. And he's willing to fight for it tooth and nail to the grave. And it's really, really impactful, powerful ending. It's it's a remarkable film. Tremendous movie. Such a good script. Great performances. Wildly funny. Beautiful cinematography. I think it's like top three best-looking movie of the year. Oh, yeah. It is gorgeous. If it doesn't get nominated for cinematography, again, I will not watch the Oscars. (laughs) You're going to watch it. You know it. Before we continue, the best way to support Raiders of the Lost Podcast, besides using our coupon codes, is to share us with your movie friends and family members and become a patron at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast to get awesome perks like personalized videos, personalized messages. $10, $25, and $100 tier patrons get access to our Discord. We interact with you every day and have watch parties, but it only costs as little as $2 to sign up for Patreon. $25 and $100 tier patrons also get their own custom episode. You pick the topic, we do it for you. $100 tier patrons, you are the chosen ones. You are an executive producer at the end of every main episode. You get a personal watch party, and after three months of being in that tier, you get to come on the show for a fun guest segment. Patreon is the reason why we can do the show full-time, so thank you so much for your support around the world. Our other amazing sponsor is MoviePosters.com. Use our special promo code RAIDERS10 to get 10% off your order today. MoviePosters.com has a gigantic selection of pretty much every movie and TV show imaginable in their poster library, as well as all sorts of options for sizes, framing, and even backlighting for your poster needs. So whatever your needs are, MoviePosters.com has you covered. We have a bunch of these posters on our set as well as decorating our home and bedrooms. They are high quality, the best money you can pay for while still being very affordable. Again, head on over to MoviePosters.com and use our promo code RAIDERS10 to get 10% off your order today. (laughs) Let's move on to our (laughs) final film of the episode, Decision to Leave. Directed by Park Chan-wook, written by Park Chan-wook and Chung seol kung starring Park Ha-il, Tang-wai, and Lee Jung-hyun, a detective investigating a man's death in the mountains, a mysterious man's death, meets the dead man's mysterious widow and suspects her in the crime. IMDb, this is a 7.3. Rotten Tomatoes, it is a 94% critic score, 91% audience score, box office, $18 million globally. Park Chan-wook also won Best Director at Cannes Film Festival this year. 7.3 on IMDb. That is pretty low for a Park Chan-wook movie. And I I feel like... Maybe not a lot of people understood this movie. They had mixed emotions about it. Maybe they thought it was boring or too complex or maybe – I don't know. i I read reviews. People thought it was pretentious on IMDb, so stuff like that. But I think it's a brilliant movie. It's a great genre blend of a classical type of story where we have like a new mystery, murder mystery of a detective falling in love with his suspect – classic like movie from hollywood you know but it's subverted and changed to the contemporary setting using infusing technology in really inventive ways with park which park Chanwick really does this movie i think is the most deserving of a rewatch of the three film be- three films because there's so many minute details that I feel like I didn't really fully pick up on my first viewing, but then like looking back on it and thinking about it, I'm like all these things that are like little puzzle little puzzles, little details, little Easter eggs, that it, I think it needs another viewing to fully digest this movie again. I not saying it's a bad thing about the movie. I think it's a great thing because it's so complex. Great movies deserve rewatches. Funny as hell this movie as well. Great script. And it is the official submission of South Korea for the best international film category of the 95th Oscars in 2023. I think that this film is also the best edited movie I've seen all year. And it, I think it should have won Best Editing at the Oscars. It also has some of the best cinematography. I think Park Chan-wook, his style, it just I think, is improving with every movie. And I, the way he uses the medium in new ways is really remarkable. In this case, we it's a detective story, murder mystery. We've seen all of these scenes uh, a thousand times Police interrogations, uh, checking over evidence, uh, interrogating people. Foot chases. Foot chases. We've seen it all over and over and over again. But what Park Chan-wook does is really special where the way he films in, edits this picture, it feels fresh and it feels exciting and it feels like you've never seen these sequences before. And he injects so much energy in, in both the cinematography and the editing. And it really makes this film something wholly unique in the genre I think he absolutely deserved the best director at Cannes, and I have him as the front runner for best director in America uh, for the Oscars. I hope he gets nominated and wins. But if not, definitely editing and cinematography need to be recognized for this movie because it's the best of the year. Uh, he was really creative with his use of technology, uh, especially how screens are used and depicted on films. We're seeing, like, the POVs, basically, of these screens where they're laced over the screen and a character is reading it. And it, it's just, like, a brilliant way to portray technology that we hadn't seen before. And on top of that, it is so great – it, it was so darkly comedic and had me cracking up most of the time. Like, just when the, the, when the cops are – Going up the cliff in the opening of the movie, and they're they're going up this rope like hundreds of meters high. <laughs> a little motor, it's like, do we have to do this? <laughs> hilarious, and just the the way he edits the film is very funny as well. And also, the courtship of the detective and the suspect slash widow, hilarious, especially their first ever interview, which lasts quite a long time. And he buys the most expensive sushi in the area, like this ultimate sushi box. And the other comps are like, is that ultimate sushi box? (laughs) (laughs) Because he's trying to impress her because he's instantly attracted to her and finds something about her that he can't resist. And he's so drawn to her. And it blinds him because at first he thinks there's no way she could be... At fault here. She must be the victim. And uh, I think she's so sweet and innocent. And I want her. And he ends up tampering evidence to protect her in a lot of ways. We'll get to that. But I think that Park Chan-wook's use in embracing of technology in his storytelling is so inventive and refreshing in a lot of ways because so many filmmakers – Either they'll kind of like pretend like smartphones don't exist and it's a contemporary setting. You're like, where are the smartphones? Like, whenever. Why aren't they, the kids all on their Whenever there's right a, now? a high school scene, I'm like, where are the smartphones? Yeah. Like, kids are on their phones all the time, yeah. constantly, 24 7. Or some filmmakers use too much of them in, in not interesting ways. Like, I hate when it's like on screen, there's just like the text bubbles coming up and a conversation. It's like. Right next to like the character's head, I've seen that in a bunch of movies. And if TV I see shows. it, I like it when I like it when the camera's like showing that phone in yeah. the person's hand. Like that's okay. And you know, I read an interview with Park Chan Wook where he's like, "I wrote this script and this idea, and it's got it involves a, two characters texting a lot and and using technology to communicate." He's like, "I didn't want that. I don't want to have a phone of just people texting. I don't want to make like a teen movie or something like that." And he was trying to figure out ways to avoid it, but then he ended up embracing the idea of using technology as a storytelling device, used the text messaging effectively uh, with infusing with his filmmaking in terms of the great POV shots of, like, Inside the phone, like looking out or looking on, like kind of you're being a voyeur, peeking into somebody's phone, as well as using voice recording devices to leave messages for the characters, leave messages for themselves, and then they reveal these messages to characters later on. As well as the translating app was reused very effectively because C O Ray, played by Tai Wang, she's a Chinese actress who got a lot of prominence back in like the early in the 2000s, working with Ang Lee. And Park Chan-wook cast her specifically for this role. The character Seo-rae wasn't supposed to be a Chinese uh, immigrant in South Korea. But because she's Chinese and she, he wanted her in the film, she, he changed the character to do, to that. So then that's why he infused this translating that because Seo-rae speaks very good Korean. However, it's not her first language. And when you want to try to—you could say— Pour your heart out to somebody, or really be emotional. You you're yeah. going to talk with your 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 original language, your original tongue, even if you're very proficient at Korean, which she clearly is. She uses the translating app when she's pouring herself out, so that she can speak Chinese and say things truly from the heart. Uses the translation app to send messages to, um, Jung that way. And she is a killer. She killed her husband, but in a way. The audience empathizes with her and in a way he empathizes with her and he kind of understands why she did it but it leads him to the point where he's betrayed his entire life of law and order and preventing death and saving lives where he gets to the point where he loves her so much that he's willing to eliminate the evidence that he does find the proof that he found that she was the killer of her husband and it ends up breaking his heart and breaking him down um, emotionally emotionally and mentally to the point where he has to like take a break. And he and his wife move to a different city because uh, he can't stay in Busan anymore after this. And I think that in a, in a way she was hoping that they could begin a relationship um, after this experience. I think she was hoping for that. And in a way he wanted that, but he decided to leave. Decision to leave. I think that's the first real decision to leave um that the movie's referencing. And it's a very tragic story because it's this it's about basically an impossible love and then an intimacy that will never be and can never be. And the film ends up being this um this tragic tale of a man who's never going to stop obsessing over a woman because at the end of the film she kills herself but also wants to be another cold case file on his walls she wants to be photographs on his unsolved murder case like shrine that he can obsess over and spend all of his time thinking about and working towards so in a way this voyeuristic relationship will continue indefinitely because they had this unspoken like agreement that they were in a relationship of him Watching her and her enjoying being watched by him and him investigating, yeah, her. <laughs> investigating her. And in, in a way, she she liked the attention. She liked that he was in, investigating her and that she was a suspect. And it it was this this weird back and forth where, like, he's sleeping in his car outside her apartment, and then she just says good morning to him and then goes to work and I think they liked this weird odd relationship they kind of formed by accident it's an oddly strangely romantic movie maybe the most, most romantic movie of the year and you know decision to leave many decisions to leave in this film you know that's the title of the movie C.O.R.A. making the decision to leave her husband by killing him which you know we don't condone murder but it's a movie it's interesting <laughs> and so she makes the decision to kill him to leave that marriage that she's trapped and that she doesn't want to be in also, the making the decision to have the other man in her life killed, who's controlling her and bogging her down, and then obviously uh, Heijun deci- deciding to leave her, basically in this fake relationship that they've kind of set up in Busan, because he's a he's got his weekend wife, which is really unfair to his wife to be in have this infidelity in a lot of ways, this intimate kind of relationship, even though connection yeah. connection with somebody else, and to play house with her uh, in Busan decides to leave that situation after he figures out that she committed the murder and he destroyed the evidence with her because he's bro he's a broken man now that's what he tells her and you know she uses she records that and shows it to him later and reveals it to him later on the phone when he's trying to find her at the beach and the suicide is a decision to leave that's her decision to leave and it's a great point of now she'll just be up on his wall so that this odd relationship will always continue. It'll They'll be together forever. This may have been the only way they would be together for her to kill herself so that no one can find out that he tampered with the evidence. And so, that, like you said, he, she'd always be on his wall. In a way, I don't, even though he loves her, I don't think he can feel like he can ever like be with her because he knows she's a murderer. Mm-hmm. And he, he knows that, once again, even though she didn't physically kill her second husband, she caused his death by intentionally setting up a, and manipulating a series of events that would make someone want to kill him. And so she, he knows that she's responsible for two deaths. So in a way, I'm not sure he could ever actually be in a normal relationship with her. On top of that, he has this, like, in the back of his head, this fear of her. Because when they go on that hike and they go to the cliffside and he's looking out on the view and then she's behind him, she approaches him from behind and, and for a moment he thinks she's going to push him off the cliff. Like I thought she, I thought she was going like, to. Yeah, like her husband. <laughs> And then she gets up to him and then hugs him tightly, uh, lovingly. So there's that fear in him that he'll never probably ever be rid of that fear. So like even if they were in a relationship, that will always be there. I love there's this motif in the movie of perspectives and how they can change the way you look at something. And uh, they show it really well with production design with wallpaper that looks like waves to one person or mountains to another person. As well as the dress that she wore when she threw the phone in the ocean, was it blue? But in different light, looks like it was green. So it's really interesting little motif as a metaphor of like looking at things with different perspectives, give you a different light, and everyone sees things differently. And you know they both look at the situation differently. It's not until Heijun starts to understand everything and the puzzles that fit that she he basically starts to finally understand Seo Ray in a lot of ways. And I like how they. This is kind of a subversion of that classical genre, where it's not just about the detective obsessed with the the suspect, the woman. It's it's first his perspective; he's making all the decisions, he's making all the he's pushing the story forward in the first half. Heijon, and then Sire, she's making this decisions in the second half of the movie. She's basically in control, and she's the one that's deciding everything. You know, she's the one that follows him to that other city, the Foggy City, and great mystery. I think the the plot of Sire. Killing her husband was so clever as a borderline genius of, you know, swapping phones with the old lady who thinks every day is Tuesday. She so she's covering her tracks and climbs the mountain uh, the the safer routes to push her husband off the cliff. Obviously murder's terrible, but I thought it was so <laughs> clever. It's like evil genius level stuff. Like it, Amy from Gone Girl yeah, level. Yeah. It was pretty great. And it has it's it's got a tragic irony. Tragic tragic irony ending where um, despite his desire to be with her, he'll never stop searching for her. And she kills herself on the shore uh, by digging a, a grave for herself where the water's coming in. And then the, as the water and tide comes in, it buries her in wet sand until the grave is completely covered. And he's searching for her, running along the coastline. Tragically, he goes in the wrong direction at first. And if he had gone the right way, he could have found the hole. Uh, and then when he finally gets to her spot, he'll, he's literally standing on top of her grave and has no idea he's just standing on her looking for her and then after a few moments he just continues wandering search- searching for any sign of her it was terribly tragic but also incredible irony for that moment and ending and i found it to be extremely powerful and what a, a final shot too and i loved uh Jun as a character he's like the super cop he's like <laughs> he's obsessed with solving crimes and he probably has a very high success rate but he's flawed. You know, He's he doesn't respect his wife. He's just like the weekend husband. That's it. As well as suffers from intense insomnia. He can't sleep. That's why he loves doing stakeouts. And that's why he loves watching people and having this voyeur personality. It's very Hitchcockian in a lot of ways. And and you can assume that probably after the, the disappearance of C.R.A. that he'll probably never sleep again. He'll never stop searching. He never will. He'll never end. It's a great movie. Yeah. So complex. I gotta see it again. One of the most beautiful films of the year in terms of cinematography. It's not pretentious. It's an, it's exceptional. <laughs> it is so artistic. Like, there's this one shot in the interrogation room where you said earlier in, when we were talking about Park chan Wook, like, we've seen these scenes a thousand times, but there's something about Park chan Wook and how he makes us interpret it differently or look differently. Like, there's a shot where the camera's on the side of the table looking at both. The sides of Siourey and Hei Jun, and on the opposite side of them is the mirror, the two-sided mirror, and the camera is picking up them in in the frame with expressions on their face that are completely different the, than the expressions that we're seeing in the mirror reflection. So we're seeing like mirrored versions of themselves, and they they seem to have found each other. You know, they she calls them like the same kind of person or or something like that. So they have that connection. But I think it's just so artistic and intimate and strangely unique and in romantic this film and I loved it so much. And very funny. It, it, yeah, it's yeah, also it's also really funny. funny. Yeah. The first act is hilarious. Yeah. Lots of great jokes. It's fast paced too. The first the opening's real quick. So you, you gotta pay attention right away. But um a lot going on, a lot of great characters, but really memorable, really great performances. I hope this gets a lot of Oscar nominations. Yeah, I adored it. And I highly recommend you check this film out. It's fantastic. All right, that wraps our mini or our episode. episode. Three mini reviews of great independent film that are in cinemas right now. All will be Oscar and awards contenders. Thanks so much for tuning in to Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Become a patron today at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Take care. See you next time. This episode of Raiders of the Lost Podcast was executive produced by our chosen one patrons. Luke Exelston, Tyler McFly, Darren Singleton, Anthony DeMeo, John A. Graz, Becca Keen, Cody Moen, Benjamin Cook, Calvin Cam, and Chandler Johnson. Thank you so much for supporting our show. Raiders of the Lost Podcast is a Mirror Image production. Sound mixing done by Jacob Kosler. Opening music by Chase Jackson.